this week on Writers Inc. So, but it, it is a big thing, you know. Like we rate everything in, in in entertainment by now, like our video games or things like that. So, if everybody's doing a rating system, then I'm fine with it. But I don't want to be the only one doing it. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Zach, what's a yup? Uh, I don't know. I just couldn't think of a better name today. <laughs> so, and I we I knew we were kind of in a hurry. So I was like, I'll just put something here. So that's, no one has any idea what we're talking about. <laughs> no, no. It's our little, our little screen names that we have when we record and only, only we see it. So yeah. Uh, great way to start the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First, you're not in your attic and now you're. Yeah. We got we weird feedback going on at the beginning. You're not in the attic anymore. Everything is completely wrong. Like I, I feel like we need to just, just start over. Are we allowed yeah. to tell people where you are? I yeah, don't know it, if that's is, a thing or it, not. Is it a hidden location? Like a? No, I'm I'm in the Outer Banks, and I'll be home by the time anyone hears this, so I don't have to worry about people finding me. But uh. I was going to say, and anyone who comes looking for you needs to get a life. More, more importantly. <laughs> You're not that interesting. <laughs> more importantly, Jay's house is empty right now if you're looking for... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah there you go yeah. no it's not, it's not empty the closing got delayed because zach had to open his big mouth a few weeks ago and start talking about my house and now he jinxed it so thanks zach oh i'll just leave see you guys later <laughs> no i'm visiting my brother and uh you know it's it's always hard when you get out of your digs you know and uh especially hard especially hard for podcasting because you have you, you control the environment whenever you record wherever you know you normally do and then when you're on the road it's like all bets are off so uh you know hopefully and, uh, yeah. and if you only had two other people you could have maybe passed some of that duty on to it would have been i don't know but i i, I want zero responsibility <laughs> oh i know i know you do <laughs> I, i'm just kidding if that's the phone call that's coming i'm not answering <laughs> it would have so been here me, don't worry he, he would <laughs> definitely hit me up don't worry all right. We're here. We're doing it. Uh, yeah. Higher hell water. We're doing it. So here, here we are. All right. Well, a shout out to Joanna. I don't know if you guys listened, but she actually caught COVID. She yeah, sounds I heard like she's, that. Yeah, she, she's recovering. It sounds like she's, she's doing better, but she, she definitely sounded like she took a beating there for a good week or so. Are, are you congratulating her on catching it? Is that the... That's I, what I, I was I, like. Com, out the, <laughs> shout out to Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> she's honestly the only person that I, I sort of know that that's caught it. Um, as crazy as that sounds, you know, like I, I see the news just like everybody else. I mean, it sounds like, you know, half the, the country is walking around sick, but like, I, I literally have nobody in my life that's actually caught it. She's like the closest to that, that, that I have, but no, I was just amazed. I mean, I, I know how, you know, Joanna doesn't, um, you know, she, she's fairly active, you know, like I know she had already gotten one shot, you know, so like it was surprising. And I, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because she did. I just kind of thought it was cool that she came on the podcast and she told everybody about it and told her, you know, told everybody how she was doing and we're, you know, just kind 
kind of clued everybody in from the, the perspective of somebody who's actually caught it and coming out the other side of it. So kudos for that. Yeah. And she, uh, she kept on trucking, got the up and did miss an episode. Uh, and yeah, just, just keeps on rolling. So yes, sir. What are you guys working on this week? Um, same old, same old on my side. I'm going to fire my porch guys again. Um, <laughs> they, they came back. We had a long conversation. There was, you know, I hired somebody else who was going to come in and finish these last couple items they have on the punch list. And then the original contractor said, it just, I'll get somebody in there. I'll get it done. Give me a, a couple more days. So I gave him until Friday. Um, so he's got until tomorrow. He's got like two things left on the list. So we'll, we'll see where, where he ends up. Um, it's just the guy that he sent back just loves to take little shortcuts. Like I just went out there and, you know, he showed me the, this railing that he put in and I broke out the level and like, it's, it's off by a half inch, you know, like one side versus the other. Like it, it can't happen. Like I'm paying too much money for this. So they, they, they need to fix it or they need to move on. Um, aside from that, I'm just working. I, I, you know, I'm still working on that same book where I, you know, I, I dropped about 30,000 words and took a, a back step and it, and it's funny how that, that process works because, you know, before I did that, you know, I was sitting down at my desk every day. I was still getting the words done, but it, it was tough going. Like I was, you know, literally squeezing water out of a rock. Like my brain did not want to write that book. And like, I, I should have seen that as a, you know, as a sign, you know, that I had gone down the, the you know, the rabbit hole or took a, a wrong turn. Um, because as soon as, as soon as I cut those 30,000 words, backtracked and figured out what really needed to happen you know like I'm, I'm flying like it's like somebody turned the spigot on full blast again um so yeah it's the moral of that story is just listen to your your subconscious a little bit you know if, if something's not clicking there, there's a reason for it you know take a take a beat and, and try to figure out why yeah i'll add on to that and then i want to hear what zach's been working on because i had a very similar experience this week i had uh in the current project I'm, I'm working in which i don't know i'm writing it as a serial i don't know if it's going to be on Velo or not but that's how i'm writing it and i had two chapters in there where i kind of I knew in the back of my mind, like they weren't as good as they could have been. And I, and I think I tried like telling myself, oh, they'll be fine. And, and I kept thinking about it and I kept thinking about it. And I'm like, nope, I got to rewrite those. And, and uh, on a run, I kind of had an idea of how I could improve those two, but it was the same thing. It's like, at first I was trying to fool myself and send like, oh, those will be good enough. Um, and, and then realized they're, they're, they're not. And uh, so I'm going to rewrite them. Well, I started hearing everybody else that's in my life that normally sees my books after they're done. So, you know, like I, in my mind, I could hear my wife telling me, hey, this part, you know, I could hear my agent bringing up, hey, this part, you know, my beta readers. And like, it felt like that was coming unless I actually did something about it before it gets to them. And, you know, it just, it nagged at me to the point where I, I chopped out those words and, and, you know, went back and, and redid it. So, right. Right. Zach, have you ever run into something like that? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, not, not that drastic where I was cutting that many words, but you know, ho hopefully I don't have to learn that lesson. I can just learn from you guys. <laughs> if I feel I'm going down the wrong path, just, uh, just turn around. But, uh, but yeah, I feel a little bit like JD today cause I have a plumber coming. Um, so, you know, I have, I, I almost had them come during the podcast. So like you could hear a bunch of stuff in the background, <laughs> like we normally do for JD, but, uh, I, I, I'm having them come later, but, uh, other than that, um, you know, I'm working on my Dead South series still. Still, I just got several covers made for that series. Um, uh, I just hired a narrator for the audiobooks. Um, I just I just did that this week, um, which was a painstaking process. My my big thing there is the books are short, so I, they're not what you'd call like credit worthy, quote unquote. But I have a talking to some friends of mine who are doing really well with audiobooks, I kind of have a long-term strategy for it. Um, so, and I'm, I'm, uh, it's going to be an expensive endeavor, but hopefully it'll be worth it in the end. And, um, 
So I got the other than that, I'm just it's 99 degrees here today, so I'm just trying to stay out of the heat. <laughs> so awesome. Well, cool. We got a uh, we have any publishing news or anything hitting the wires this week? No, it's it's been pretty quiet. I, I looked right before we got on the line and I haven't really seen anything. Yeah, I didn't see anything major coming through either. So, uh, yeah, so I guess we'll just take care of some business and then we'll get into our interview today. Uh, we want to give a shout out to Kobo Writing Life, our wonderful sponsors. Uh, Kobo Writing Life empowers you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. You get to set your price, keep rights, and of course, no exclusivity. So if you want to be part of Kobo Writing Life and you want to take your books wide, make sure to go to KoboWritingLife.com and that's where you can get started. We also want to give a shout out to all of our patrons. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show where you can submit questions to our question and answer episodes, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash writers inc podcast. So JD, who do we got on the show today? Today we've got Karen Slaughter, um, who's, you know, she's been around for, for a while, um, you know, uh, hits the, the, the list almost every single time, I think, at this point with, with her books. I, I just looked at her latest novel. It's called False Witness. It released on uh, July 20th, and it just hit at number six on the New York Times list. Um, so she's definitely got a, a process dialed in. I, I, I personally love this book um, simply because she actually, you know, mentions COVID. Um, she kind of said it in the, the real world, you know, where we currently, you know, everything is, is currently happening um, instead of glossing it o- over that. And, and virtually everybody else that I know, including myself, have found ways to just not mention it at all. Um, but she just kind of hit it head on. Um, and it, she's got an, an addict in her book, which it's it's so, such a realistic portrayal of an addict. Like, I, I, I don't know if she has somebody in her life that she was able to talk to about this or if she's just incredibly good at doing research. Um, but, you know, she, the, the portrayal is just it's 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 perfect. I mean, it, it's one of the better ones I've, I've ever read. I mean, you end up falling in love with this character and it. And it there's so many reasons not to, um, but it, you do anyway. Um, fantastic read, fantastic author, and she's always fun to talk to. Here she is, Karen Slaughter. Can I send you my 6,000-page manuscript on unicorns helping heal adult survivors of child sexual abuse? Um, you know, that's not my area of expertise, but I'd be glad to share my publicist and my editor's email address. They would love to see that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I guess you, you probably get a lot of unsolicited manuscripts. No, you know, actually I don't because I have a really firm policy about that. And, and part of it is because, you know, that's your work and you shouldn't be sharing it with people who you don't really know. You know, because uh, <laughs> they might do something with it you don't like. Um, but, you know, also uh, a lot of people will say, hey, I've got a great idea for a book. You write it and we'll split the profit. And it's really not the idea that's the hard part. Yeah. You know, and just sitting your butt in the chair and working out how it goes. I mean, that's the hard part is just physically sitting down and doing it. Yes. Do you get those kind of conversations at cocktail parties with people who are not writers? Um, you know, I thank you for cocktail parties. Um, I'm very introverted and I don't normally do cocktail parties or parties or, you know, when I, I've been planning for the pandemic my entire life. <laughs> um, so it's like, uh, it's not my thing to do. Normally, if, if like somebody meets me and they're like, what do you do? And I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, should I tell them? Um, and I'll say I'm a writer. 
And either they'll recognize me or they'll say, oh, who's your publisher? Because I think they think I'm self-published. Uh, and I'll say HarperCollins and I'll go, oh, well, that's a real publisher. (laughs) (laughs) And then of course they assume I write children's books or YA or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. I guess I don't look like a crime writer maybe. (laughs) Um, and, and people will say that to me when they meet me, they're like, oh, I expected you to be bigger. It's like, I I didn't know there was like a, a, it's like Disney, you know, you must be this tall (laughs) to write thrillers. Yeah, you don't have like sunglasses on and a dark cape or, yeah, you're not fitting the mold, I guess. You know, most of us don't. I mean, I've seen Mike um, Connolly in flip-flops, so (laughs) you lose your cred there, guy. Um, The only author I know who like dresses that whole badass thing is Neil Gaiman. Yes. And I remember talking to him at, uh, we were outdoors in New York, it was 10,000 degrees and he's still wearing his leather jacket. <laughs> and I'm in a t-shirt with Snoopy on it and I'm sweating. And he's like, Oh, you know, it's a little chilly out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess gaming could get away with that. Yeah. Well, and Chris Moore dresses the part, but I think that's just cause he's got that whole Hawaiian vibe. Right. Right. So he looks like you'd expect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wanna, not so much. Yeah, I want to. I want to ask. Uh, read this tagline. This is wonderful. Uh, he saw what you did. He knows who you are. Uh, so you have a new book out called False Witness. Tell us about it. Well, it's um, it's really kind of about trauma. I mean, obviously, it's got it's a thriller. It's got slaughter. It's got you know twists and turns and all that. Um, but it, at its core, it's about two sisters who experience something really horrific when they're young. And then we catch up with them 20 years later as adults. And, and that, of course, you know, this being a, a thriller, that horrific thing knocks back on their door again. Um, but we see how the trauma has affected them. And that's something I'm always interested in as a writer and just a human being. And that we're all going to learn a lot about post pandemic, I think, is how early trauma can affect people. I mean, we know that it makes you more predisposed toward depression and heart disease and diabetes and uh, even things like alcohol addiction and drug addiction. So, I mean, part of me watching this pandemic is like, yeah, it's bad now, but let's catch up with these kids in 20 years and see how it's going to affect them. And, and, you know, that, that's the kind of thing I write about in my book. So for Lee and Callie, the two sisters in this, it really is about the trauma and how they survived and in some ways didn't survive it. Yeah. And you made a very interesting story choice uh, right in the beginning of this novel. You came right out and uh, and you talked about the pandemic. Can, can you give yeah. us a little peek behind the curtain as to what the, your decision making process was to just hit that straight on? Well, you know, initially I asked a lot of author friends and like Lisa Unger, Alif Burke, you know, they were all, uh, I write for escapism. I'm not going to include it. Um, but Mike Connolly said, yeah, I'm actually going to write it in my new Lincoln lawyer. And I thought, well, if Mike's going to do it, then that gives me some cover so I can see if people hate it. <laughs> I can go back and nobody really complained about it. So you know, the book is set during the pandemic. It's not about the pandemic, but I just wanted to capture how crazy our lives were. And, you know, the masking, the social distancing, all of that stuff and reactions to it. And 
a, a lot. So I started this in March of 2020 before we knew how crazy things would get. So a lot of my research was reading around, well, what happened when the polio vaccine came out? And guess what? Like 30% of Americans were like, nope, not getting it. It's too, the technology's too new. It's I'm a good, don't want to be a guinea pig. It, the, the government's going to track me. I mean, you wonder what they said when electricity came, right? Right. Um, but it, it, it was really kind of startling how everything old is new again. Um, but that helped me in my writing to just sort of predict behavior. Um, and also, you know, I just I wanted to be really careful about it because I didn't want the pandemic to intrude into the story. So I, I really kind of encapsulated it within the text. You know, and it, it helped solve some plot problems uh, because, you know, like one thing is Lee has a teenage daughter she's not living with and women would just hate her for that. Right. Because they would call her a bad mother no matter what. And uh, with the pandemic, it makes sense that her daughter's living in the suburbs because Lee is a lawyer. She's seeing people. She's in courtroom. She's out in the middle of it. So she's protecting her daughter by not living with her. And, and the daughter's living with her father, who's a really great guy. Um, but that would not have worked without the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, too, I was really struck by sort of the role that addiction plays in the book. I don't know if it's thematic, but it's certainly... It's certainly an element in the storytelling process. Can, can you talk about how that played into the story? Well, it felt really important because, you know, I think every person I know has a family member or a friend who struggled with addiction. And we know these people and we love these people. Sometimes we may hate them, but we still love them. Um, and I wanted to humanize that because usually in film, TV, in books, when you have a junkie character, they're either like a stone cold criminal or they're pathetic or they're horrible people. And I look at addiction like I look at mental illness. You know, if you're an asshole and you have a mental illness, you're still an asshole. <laughs> but if you're a Preach. good person, right, and you have a mental illness, you're still a good person, right? And so I wanted to write about someone who's a good person, but who's also struggling with heroin addiction. And that's something the pandemic really brought out. I mean, we're almost at 100,000 overdoses that we know about. Um, and that doesn't even include the overdoses we see in jails and prison where drugs are much more toxic and they don't really track that because it's not in their interest to track that to let people know, hey, we've got so many drugs here. People are dying. Um, so I wanted to talk about that and I wanted to humanize it and I wanted to talk about you know, stuff that I know just from dealing with family members going through this, which is like, AA is fantastic, but it only works for 5% of people. NA is great. It seldom works for heroin addicts. I mean, there's a physical component that is very real and very dangerous. Uh, we know that medically assisted detox, medically assisted recovery is very successful for a lot more people. But, you know, we're still these puritanical Americans who are like, no, no, we can't give them drugs, even if it helps them. And you got to think like no one says to a diabetic, no, you just need to train your pancreas to make insulin on your own. Uh, you know, are you you've got heart disease? No, no more statins for you, buddy. You just got to <laughs> eat kale. Right. <laughs> so I, it, I, it's something that I just wanted to bring out. And it felt like a book set during the pandemic where this was such a like a second pandemic 
of drug dose, of drug overdosing would be a, a good platform to talk about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and related to that, uh, this is something I struggle with. I know a lot of my writer friends struggle with this. How do you write an authentic story without triggering readers? And I'm putting triggering in quotes for for sort of what that social context means. So th there seems to be um, I don't know if it's a paradox, but there there's a there's an issue there, right? Of, about writing sort of real things, but at the same time not upsetting people. What is your take on that? Well, so my take is it's very, there aren't kittens on my jackets. I have advocated <laughs> for that because I love cats, but you know, like there's a bloody light bulb or there's a woman running, looking over her shoulder because she's terrified. So, I mean, that kind of, and, and slaughter is like really big on there. So, you know, I think at this point, I, people know my reputation. And if they don't want to read a book that's visceral and realistic, then I, God, there's so many other fantastic books they can read that are wonderful writers who don't choose to look at these topics the same way I do. Um, you know, I don't know how I feel like trigger warnings can have big spoiler alerts. So I, I wish that they would be like, click here if you want the trigger warning, like a trigger warning for the trigger warning. Yes. Um, <laughs> And, and I respect that. Absolutely. Because I don't want someone reading my book where it's just going to be too upsetting and make them think of something that happened to them or, you know, um, but also I, I think, um, you know, we all have a choice and I think that's great and it shouldn't limit people's choices, you yes. know? Yes. So, yeah. but it, it is a big thing, you know, like we rate everything. In, in, in entertainment by now, like our video games or things like that. So if everybody's doing a rating system, then I'm fine with it, but I don't want to be the only one doing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like you said, you've established a reputation, you've established a readership. They, they know what they're getting. Uh, so I guess that, that begs a bigger question is, you know, now given where you are, what is your relationship to genre? Do you, do you play to the conventions? Do you innovate at them? Do you ignore it completely? Um, yeah, I think I ignore it, but I mean, that's like no diss on the genre. Cause I love thrillers. I love big commercial fiction. I'm not one of these writers who's like, Oh, I could be a literary writer. If only I didn't get paid so much to kill people, you know? Um, because I just, I love this. I love this type of book. And, you know, as it like a, a follow on to your previous question, one of the reasons I write this type of book is when I started, there weren't a lot of women giving voice to the woman's perspective on these crimes, you know, and like if in a lot, and this is no offense against men. And there's some like, like Peter Robinson's a fantastic uh, writer from a woman's point of view, Mark Billingham, despite his best intentions is really great at writing from a woman's point of view, you know, but I was reading a lot of books where a woman was sexually assaulted and then her response was like, she was either pathetic or she was riding a motorcycle and wearing leather. And the way both of them were saved was the hero made love to her and she was all better. Right. And I was like, eh, that's not true. You know, <laughs> I know a lot of women. Every woman knows a lot of women who have been sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, you know, almost been assaulted, that sort of thing. And so I wanted to bring a woman's voice to that. But I was very mindful when I started my first book of my grandmother, because when I was a little girl, we would go after church every Sunday to my grandmother's house to have Sunday dinner. And 
my grandmother would sit at the table, you know, having cooked for like six hours. Um, and she would have a black eye or a cut lip or occasionally a broken bone. And my uncles would tease her about being clumsy. And so as I got older, I was like, wait a minute, nobody's this clumsy. My grandfather is beating the shit out of her like all the time. He's an alcoholic. He's a horrible person. And, you know, we're not talking about it and it's not helping my grandmother. It's only helping him. And so when I wrote Blindsided, my first book, I thought I'm going to tell the woman's story so no one can say, oh, she's clumsy. Oh, she loves him. Oh, well, she hit him, too, because, yeah, he must have been freaking terrified when she slapped him. Right. So, you know, that's the story that I wanted to tell and just not gloss it over, not make it sexy or titillating or have these binary choices about how women recover from this because every woman's different and i will say that like most of my letters early on were from women who read this and said thank you for telling my story or you know this makes me feel stronger because we don't really you know we hear stuff on the news maybe if it's a if it's a good looking white woman we're going to hear about it right. right but then we don't follow up a year later, five years later, 10 years later, where she never goes outside after dark. She can't sleep on her stomach. She can't go to bed without checking every lock and every window five or six times. She never feels safe in her body. She has fear, lives with fear. That's what I want to talk about. Cause you know, a lot of times bad things happen, but then I talk about what happens next. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your process. Are you still running off into the mountains to do your first draft? Yes, absolutely. What's that look like? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, there's like this Pavlovian response by now that when I get to a certain point outside of Atlanta, my shoulders kind of relax and I listen to a little Dolly, you know, set me in the mood um, or Tupac, if it's that kind of story. And it just clears my mind. And you know, if I write at home, I'm like, oh, when's the mail coming? Oh, is that the UPS guy? Let me see how his grandchildren are, you know? So it's, I just need to be isolated. I don't bring my cats because everybody knows cats only are around when you don't want them to be, you know, it's like, now I'm going to sit on your laptop now that you want to use it. So I, I love doing that. I, it's a luxury to be able to do that. Um, and I love my cabin because my dad built it for me 20 years ago. I mean, oh, wow. I had to pay for it, but yeah. he's he was the builder on it. So it has a lot of history for me. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's wonderful. Uh, is that just first drafting? Do you revise at home? You know, I don't really revise a lot. I don't do drafts. So when I start, I think a lot before I write. So my drafting and my revision usually takes place in my head. And then I'm up there two weeks at a time. And so I'll work on that, you know, section that I've written and I'll, I, I go back and revise it then, but then I, you know, move forward. So I, it's not, it's a different process for me. I know a lot of people do like a million drafts and, you know, I'm, I'll never forget. I had a friend and she said, you know, I, I did a draft of this novel and it took me a year and I'm just not happy with it. And I came up with another story and I think I'm going to write that story instead. And I was like, you're crazy. 
you, you know, you should not don't abandon that story. Right. And she's like, no, I really feel strongly about it. And a year later, she sends me a news story and it was gone girl. So, you know, I'm probably not the best person to ask for advice on writing. Um, you know, I remember I met Sue Munt kid years ago and she, you know, at a SEBA, which is a, like an industry organization for uh, books, Southeastern Booksellers Association. It has a new name now. Um, but I, I met Sue Munt kid and she told me about her book and I was like, nobody cares about that B book. That's never going to sell. Uh, so, you know, that's my advice is don't take my advice. <laughs> has that always been your writing process? Yeah, it has. And it, part of it comes from, you know, when I left, um, home at 18, uh, my dad said to me, you can do anything you want with your life, but you can never, ever move back home. <laughs> and so it was a, it was a real eye opener. It's like, well, who's going to buy my food? Uh, so I had to have a job. I went to college at night. I'm really proud. I'm the first person in my family to drop out of college. Um, <laughs> so uh, I had like, I painted houses. I was an exterminator. I worked in a movie theater. And that's where I put on weight, eating all that popcorn. Um, I, I had I worked in a sign company. I owned a sign. So I was always hustling, working. And when I had time to write, I just had to really write. And, you know, I was in sales when I had the sign company. So when I was in my car, that's when I would think about what I was going to write. And so I just had to, I couldn't be precious about it. I just had to sit down and do it. I can appreciate that. Uh, you, you mentioned Dolly. I have a really serious question for you. Uh, Johnny Cash or Tim McGraw? Um, Johnny Cash. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Roseanne, I, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have nothing against Tim McGraw, but uh, the cash is, they're legendary, right? Well, if Tim McGraw knew anything, he'd say cash, right? That's right. He would say cash, yeah. yeah. man in black, <laughs> duh. <laughs> but he was like, like, he was a universal storyteller mm -hmm. and he understood struggle, right? I mean, sort of in the way Dolly did with coming from poverty, but the dude was in prison. Yeah. He understood addiction. He understood being being like where you abdicate control to a substance because you can't control yourself because it's so has its tentacles in you. I mean, that's where songwriting came from is from struggle. Yeah. And, and not that Tim McGraw doesn't have it hard, but, you know, come on, man. <laughs> well, and, you know, Johnny Cash did some bad things like, uh, you know, he, sure. he wasn't an angel, but at, at the same time, like you said, I mean, he, he lived a life like he was, uh, we, we throw that word authentic around now, but like he was authentic as you could possibly be. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about a lot of rappers, we look at them differently when they have, um, the, we, we celebrate Johnny Cash, right. But we look at rappers and we're like, Oh, he went to prison. He did, you know, he has a drug. So it's a really interesting dichotomy if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. It's a bit of a double standard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, don't even get me started on Britney, man. All right. <laughs> I don't think Brittany will fit into our conversation with, uh, with Johnny and Dolly and Tim. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Save the Libraries? I'm a huge library supporter. And when I was little, I mean, first we had the bookmobile on the school bus. 
And I'm just going to be straight up honest. She was a horrible person, that that driver. She was a chain smoker. Uh, and she was also the bus driver. So, like, I had it. I could not get away from her because I had to go to school. I had to go to the library. And I blame my sisters because they were really bad kids. So by they're older. So by the time I got on her bus, she she looked at me and she looked at the house I came from. And she was like, you're on the front row. You're on silent bus until you graduate or they kick you out of school. I was like, lady, I'm 10, you know, (laughs) Um, but I still I love reading so much that I still would go to that smoke filled bookmobile. And then when eventually we moved and I, I was able to go to the Jonesboro Library, a permanent structure with air conditioning, which was fantastic. And that's where I learned how to be a human being. You know, I, I, kids are so, I mean, I can't stand children, especially (laughs) babies. It's like, why can't you keep your head straight? Right. (laughs) Right. Um, But I, children are so, so selfish. And when they read books, they realize, wait a minute, I'm, you know, I have a purple crayon and Harold has a purple crayon. Maybe I'm not, not like the coolest kid on earth or, you know, they read Nancy Drew or they read just the books that take them outside of themselves. And that was the gift of the library. And my library charity, Save the Libraries, we just do whatever we can to help libraries. First, we were doing fundraisers and, and you know, we get like Kitty Stockett, uh, Catherine Stockett, who wrote The Help, Mary Kay Andrews, Charlene Harris, Tess Garrison, Lee Child. And we would all pay our way to go somewhere and fundraise. And then we're like, wait a minute, why are we doing this? Let's just give them the money and stay home. Uh, and so that's that's what we do now is the, the organization will give block grants to libraries and just say, spend it on fixing the toilet or a reading circle or a roof or whatever you need. That's awesome. We'll make sure we have a link to, to that in the show notes as well. Uh, well, Karen, this has been a, a delightful conversation. I have one last question for you and uh, totally open-ended. You can answer it however you like. Uh, you've been in the business for a long time. Uh, you've seen a lot of things in the industry. Uh, w- what's the future look like for publishing? Well, you know, the funniest joke I ever heard about this was from Lee Child. And he said, what was Gutenberg's second book after the Bible? And uh, the answer is uh, a a treatise on how the publishing industry is dying. (laughs) Um, And so it it is a really strange model if you think about it. But I I think that just people love reading and that's what keeps us going. And books are important. They're always important. People can complain about streaming or whatever. But book sales have been really good through the pandemic, you know, I mean, they haven't been spectacular, but they they're holding steady. And I think people maybe have rediscovered a joy of reading in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. So, I mean, hopefully they'll keep reading and we'll keep people writing books, but I'm, I have a semi positive outlook for the future of books. All right. Karen Slaughter, uh, man, she was fun to talk to. Uh, lively, sharp, great sense of humor. Uh, love what she said about uh, the ideas versus execution. Uh, you guys get that a lot? Or people who are not writers come up to you and say, oh my God, I got this great idea for you. Oh, Jesus, that happens everywhere. Because they, they all think that coming up with the idea is the easy, or the, you know, like the part that we can't do. Like I've, <laughs> I've got a, a 
a document that's just filled with idea after idea after idea. I mean, there's just so, so much time to actually write them. Um, yeah, so that, that happens to everybody. Um, I, I thought it was kind of funny. Like, you know, she's, she's at a, a very you know high level as far as thriller authors go. A lot of people know her name. So like the idea of her being at a party and nobody knowing who she is, is, is kind of funny to me. Um, and she called herself an introvert and it's, she always strikes me as the exact opposite of that. If you run into her at, at thriller fest or anywhere else, like, you know, she's usually got a group of people around her and it's not because she's just Karen Slaughter. It's because she's, she's funny as hell and she's just fun to hang out with. Um, so, you know, she never struck me as an introvert, but you know, who knows, maybe the sense of humor is like a, a defense mechanism. That's how she actually copes with it. Um, but a cool person to talk to great person to get advice from if you ever run into her, cause she'll, she'll talk your ear off. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was on, this was a great interview. She touched on a lot of really, um, th- things I loved. I mean, everything JD mentioned before we went into the interview, uh, you know that um, her book has an addict in it. She talked a little bit about that in the interview. I love what she, some of the stuff she was saying, um, and and some of the misconceptions and stuff around that. And um, I think it's really cool she was able to write that and in, in, into the book. Uh, I love what she. I love when she talked about um, trigger warnings and self censorship. I think that that's a uh, a slippery slope that people are getting into, in my opinion. You know and. Um, I, I, you know, I do think trigger warnings, if, you know, like she said, they can be spoilers. I'm there. I think they definitely could be good things, but I don't think that, um, you know, people should be pulling back on what they're writing, you know, and, and that, um, I, I think that writing it just as JD said with her talking about, um, Ryan and co, you know, in t- term of COVID, um, you know, we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't stray away from reality and writing unless you're writing fantasy or something like that. But if you want to write a realistic book, you know, don't, don't sugarcoat it. I also want to throw in there, this is a true story we don't have to get into, but I once had a 30 minute conversation face to face with Tim McGraw and didn't know who it was. (laughs) So I just want to throw it until he hand me his black Amex. So I just want to throw that out there really quick. Cause that was funny. Y'all brought him up. So (laughs) did did he order pancakes or what? What was he? It's when I was, it was when I was a manager at a music store in town. Oh, music store. And he came in buying a bunch of stuff for Christmas for family. And, I realized after a minute that after a few minutes after he was kept just buying stuff and not balking at the price that it was somebody and that people were staring at him really weird, but he had a baseball cap on and like a sweater. I didn't, I didn't, if faith had been with him, I probably would have known who he was, but yeah, I had That's no kind of how that works. I mean, I, he probably, I was gonna say he probably I, I appreciated was, the fact that I didn't know who he was, you know, like, and I just had a real conversation with him. Back in the, the day when I used to babysit a lot of these uh, the celebrities down in um, South Florida, I, I noticed that almost straight off the bat. You know, like if they went out by themselves, you know, like if it was just me and, and somebody famous, nobody had a clue. We could walk through the shopping mall. We could go down to the beach. We could do whatever. Um, but a lot of them made a very conscious effort to stand out. You know, they, they'd have bodyguards around them. They'd have this crew. And like you notice that first, you know, first and foremost, you see this group of people around somebody else. And then you try to figure out who that somebody is, you know, like so, you know, they, they, they bring it on themselves in a lot of ways um but yeah i've never met tim mcgraw i've actually met his wife a couple of times um and i'm sure they're super they're nice very, dude yeah, yeah. Really, and, but anyways yeah. back to karen yeah i've a tim no, mcgraw but, uh, faithful story but i'm yeah, not going to tell it now <laughs> you actually brought up a, a really good point because i get this question a lot like do you guys use sensitivity readers like would you ever go down that road i, I know personally i don't I have um, no interest in that personally. You know, the publishers do, um, you know, at this point they're, you know, they've added that to their, their stable of people that go through your book. 
um, you know, so they'll come at you with a, a list, you know, like these are the things the sensitivity reader found that, that might be an issue. And, and they, they put it on you as the author, like, you know, whether or not to actually change those. Um, but they, they do point them out. Um, for me personally, like I, I would never let that kind of thing dictate what I'm writing. I'm just going to kind of put the story down and, and go with it. If it, if it, you're always going to, I, I, I piss people off all the time. I'm, I'm used to it at yeah. this point. And you you're know, going to, whether you have sensitivity, sensitivity readers or not, you're, you're never going to make everyone happy. And yeah. that that's just, it's pointless to try. Yeah. You know? So, but um, it's definitely a thing right now. And I, I know a lot of people are actually hiring sensitivity readers before they even submit to an agent to go through their book. And, you know, that's another road that I, I probably would tell people not to travel because, you know, it's, it's distilling your voice or it's changing your voice. It's doing something to your voice, but it's no longer your voice before it hits that finish line. Um, and you don't want to do that unless you want to make it a, a permanent part of your, your process. Because if you do it for the first book, you've got to do it for the next 50. I kind of feel like that's what genre is for. <laughs> like, you know, I, Karen touched a little bit upon it, upon it too. Like her name and her branding and in her case, her reputation, like, you know what you're going to get. And, and like, if, you know, you pick up a JD Barker book or Zach Bohannon book, like, you know what you're going to get. And, um, and the expectations are, pl are pretty clear. So I think in those cases, you know, I, I don't, I don't see the use, the need for a sensitivity reader. Now, if you're writing something that is a completely, I don't want to say literary, but but sort of doesn't have a defined genre or doesn't have observable expectations for the reader, then maybe in that case, you know, a trigger warning or a sensitivity reader might, might be helpful. But I feel like, you know, if you're picking up a horror book, you kind of know what you're going to get. Well, to you, me, it's, you know, like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not going to have a sensitivity reader to like check the type of stuff they would check. To me, it's like, it would be, like let's take let's take Karen's example in her book that she wrote from the perspective of an addict. Like to me, it would be much more offensive if someone messed that up, <laughs> and 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 that's the type of thing I would check. Like I would make sure. Like I've never been a drug addict, so like if I was going to write from that perspective, I would definitely talk to somebody with that experience, and I would do my research. And in saying that, I would probably just stay away from it altogether because. I wouldn't want to misrepresent that. Like that's the type of stuff that I worry about, not whether or not I'm going to say something that's going to offend some woke person or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Well, a simple way to look at it, if, if you're writing a book, let's say that's uh, set in the 60s, you know, they use certain language back then that we would never consider using today. You know, it's it's evolved, it's changed. However, you yeah. want to you want to phrase it, it's not the same anymore. But if I'm writing dialogue that's taking place in the '60s, I'm going to use language that they used in the '60s, and I'm and I'm going to stick yep. with that. Um, no different than the things we're saying today. Like on this podcast, the language that we use is perfectly acceptable for 2021. Who knows? You know, 2031, 2041, if what we're saying is going to be considered, you know, the the way you're supposed to speak or however you want to want to look at it. So the those types of things change. So I think in the end, you just have to be true to the story. Um, the attic thing in Karen's book, again, I really wish she would have talked on her, about her process there. I, I don't know what she did in order to nail it as well as, as she did, but you know, she was in that person's head. Um, everything she communicated, you know, I, I've known addicts in my life. Like she was spot on, you know, with everything that she communicated there. So she either researched the hell out of it, talked to a lot of people, or she knew somebody or was you know fairly close to somebody that was in that situation. But you know, she, she nailed it. And, and like you said, that that's, what's important because you don't want to go in there and get something like that wrong. I want to say, too, I, I think we'd be remiss, too, if we didn't touch on her process for a second because I was just going to bring that I, up. I thought her process was super fascinating. Not yeah. only not only the cabin thing, like I think that was really, really cool. 
um, you know, that she does our drafting, like, but the revision process, like I thought that, and Jay, you're non right now. So maybe I'll let you, I'm gonna let you chime in on that. Cause I thought that was really interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, what I thought she was going to say was that, uh, that she developed that over time. Like that would have, like that would have made more sense to me given how many books, how prolific she is, how successful she's been. If she's like, well, now, you know, here I am decades later and I don't really revise because I work the story out in my head and then it just hits the page. But she said she's always functioned that way. And that's just kind of, that really blew me away. Well, I, I think what's going on there, and I, I kind of wish you would have went into that a little bit further too. Um, you know, the whole idea of drafts came from paper. You know, like I've got Stephen King's typewritten pages from Needful Things sitting behind me. Like, you know, there's handwritten notes on there from him and at least three other people. So, you know, he would type up that manuscript. You know, people would look at it. They would make notes. They would make changes. Then somebody would go back and they would retype that and that that would be your next draft. So, like, that's where that kind of thing came from. Um, today's world, we've obviously got computers. So, you know, we're working in one file for, you know, many of us do anyway. Like, we're either working in Scrivener the entire time or we've got one Word document. Um, so I'm sure she's going back and she's hitting and adjusting and, and rewriting writing things. I, I think she's probably doing something similar to what, what Dean Koontz does with, you know, like he goes back and he reads whatever he wrote the previous day. He reads through it again. He makes some changes to it, corrects it. And then he just kind of keeps going when he hits the bottom of that page and just, you know, works his way through the book. And by the time he hits that last page, it's, it's, you know, pretty much perfect. There's very little for him to do. Um, I know plenty of other writers though, that, that feel that it's very important to not look at the text that they've already written, you know, start the day with something fresh, just knock out a couple thousand words and keep going. And, you know, they know that first draft isn't going to be clean, but they get to that finish line faster and they're more comfortable doing that and then going back and adjusting um so yeah it's, it's all process you know you just have to figure out what's going to work best for you so I, I always encourage everybody to try you know every every different thing that they hear like this you know try to figure out what's going to fit best um and sooner or later you're going to stumble into a method that works for you agreed and i and i i think that's one of the great things about our podcast if i don't mind patting us on the back for a moment is that you hear all these different processes and you hear writers doing doing things different ways and whether you try it or not, it just reinforces this idea that there isn't any one right way. It's it's the way that's going to work for you. Well, not only that, I mean, you're hearing processes from the, you know, some of the best people in the industry, and those processes aren't necessarily any different from the people that are just starting out today. Um, so it just kind of shows that we're all sort of out there doing the same thing. Yep. Yep. True. So yeah, great interview with Karen. She was a lot of fun. Uh, super great writer. And uh, we, yeah, fortunate to have her on. So uh Who's up next week, JD? Who's on the who's in the batter circle? Chuck Wendig. Um, so this guy's been around for a while as well. He's got an incredible blog. If if you're you know if, if you haven't seen it, get out there and just check out his blog. Subscribe to it. Do whatever you got to do to read it on a regular basis because it, it's it, it's really insightful um, and and funny a lot of times too. Uh, but he's got a new book out. It just came out about a week ago called The Book of Accidents. Um, so he's coming on to talk about that. Um, he's also wrote a, a lot of tie-in novels. He worked in the Star Wars universe for a while there. Um, I mean, he's been all, all across the board. So I'm sure he's going to be a lot of fun. Yep. Already looking forward to it. And his blog, by the way, for people is terribleminds.com. Excellent. So that's coming up next week. So to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.